0: Within the mounds of North America, incredible treasures have been unearthed. A wealth of copper, pearls, mica, and next to this earthly bounty, a solemn cache, unsurpassed by the former legends tell of holy stones ancient relics coins from all corners of the world and even red-haired eight foot tall mummies returning to dive into the mysterious contents of the mounds is jj vance host of operation gcd who joins me mystic mark here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with jj vance
1: The Cincinnati tablet is one of those that often transfers between the Cincinnati Art Museum. Modern day interpretations of these tablets are this is just art, there's no language on them, which I find that to be extremely ignorant. So the Cincinnati tablet specifically goes between the Art Museum and the History Museum. The best attempt to see that I've seen at interpreting what the text, the shapes of the tablet, you know, what the actual text of it is, because again, it's not art, it's, a, it's an ancient language. And that's ancient Hittite. So that's, you know, back to the Knights Templar. The ancient Hittite language would have been prominent in around, you know, the, the era of these Edina mounds, you know, and in the area on the border between Tur- modern day Turkey and Syria. Kind of the area where ISIS was destroying all those ancient monuments and holy sites, you know, not that many years ago now, right? Like five or six years ago. Right there, right near the modern day Sanlurfa, Turkey.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we are back on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast with a returning champion. That's right. Ring the bell. Ding, ding, ding. We've got a returning champion here. And I'm excited because in our first conversation, we discussed a group that is an enigma. At least has maybe a duplicitous nature to it. These are my opinions. But we talked about the Society of the Cincinnati For those who aren't aware, the word Cincinnati means city with seven hills. So it's no wonder that this group that labels itself as such has a proclivity towards building their structures of importance, whether it's government or private or recreation. These structures that they've built just so happen to be uh, on these mound sites. So we're going to be talking about the mounds today. J.J. Vance, who joined us to talk about the Society of the Cincinnati, is back on the show, and I couldn't think of a better topic to get into now after we've already laid the groundwork with the Society of Cincinnati, because, you know, these men, it just couldn't be a coincidence or accident that they went by this name that had a sort of similarity to the concept of the mound, and then also... You find these men in places where mounds are, and not only that, but in cities that are named after landscape features, aka mounds. So (laughs) I think we're getting into a topic that my audience has come to really enjoy. Every time we do an episode in this realm, we get a lot of great feedback. Yeah, any thoughts before we get started here, JJ? Welcome back to the show.
1: Mark, I appreciate the invite, and I think you laid some good analysis there down for the conversation we're going to have today, and I look forward to the conversation. I'm a mound guy myself, so I understand the the affinity amongst your audience there, and I hope they enjoy our conversation on the political aspects associated with some of these mounds here in America and, the again, the creation of America via the secret society that started America, the Society of Cincinnati, and I think you're spot on. With your assessment there in regards to the Society of Cincinnati, because, you know, jokingly I often refer to them as a, you know, what's the JFK quote, the David Ferry, or Joe Pesci, David Ferry character? He's just screaming about it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Mm. And I often joke about that's kind of how the Society of Cincinnati is it's a right. mystery wrapped in a. Yeah. You know, yeah, the um, sorry, the riddle, riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. That's where I was going. I got sidetracked there for a second, but yeah, but that's kind of you know, because there are kind of the secret society that no one's ever heard of. You know what I mean? And they obviously have weld, you know, welded a significant amount of power through not only the creation of America but the establishment of America all the way up to our modern era. Right? Yeah, it's they're an interesting bunch, and I look forward to the conversation, Mark. And again. As as you pointed out, we had a previous conversation kind of relative to these topics and almost like a this is kinda of almost like a part two to that and more an addendum, I suppose, to that conversation. But uh, yeah. for the folks of the interwebs, I'm JJ Vance and host the Operation G C D podcast. And I once again I'm a mound person, so I'm looking forward to the combo, Mark, for
0: sure. Cool. Cool. Yeah, and I will point out that I have met many great people through our mutual friend Steven Snyder of the Farm. I cannot go without giving him a plug, because it, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have encountered your work, JJ, or had the opportunity to have you on the podcast. And recently, another gentleman who Stephen introduced me to, who you might be familiar with, I think we were on one of Stephen's Zoom parties together once, Doc Inferno. And Doc was breaking down a lot of stuff that had to do with Egypt and, you know, a very interesting That he pointed out that the Egyptians said that the first structure, the primordial mound, is this very significant piece of architecture to the Egyptians going back into their very old mythology. And here in the notes that you sent me, your first point is that the mounds are not only in America, so... My question, I guess, maybe we can kick this off. Obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about the mounds here in America, but where else have you found examples of mounds around the world? Obviously, Egypt probably has some very old ones. It Maybe have been kind of overlooked or overshadowed by the pyramids. But where else do we find these mounds? I can think of maybe Ayer's Rock as a sort of primordial mound in Australia. Obviously, not quite human constructed but definitely reveled over the same way a mound might be but yeah let's kick this off what examples are there of mounds elsewhere outside of north america
1: oh for sure that's a great way to frame the topic here to kick things off mark i appreciate that yeah the you're in here the affinity for egypt is not lost on the society of cincinnati i don't think in any regard and as you pointed out yeah our mutual friend steven snyder is how we were introduced, and again, I am also thankful for the introduction here and learning to, uh, you know, getting to know your uh, podcast more, I was not previously familiar with, and learning your affinity for mounds as well, listening to some of your shows that you've discussed before relative to these ancient burial mounds of America, but yeah, they are, uh, they are a worldwide phenomenon, if you will, and they all date back to the, you know, approximate eras, there's some obviously some disputes precisely on the precise years in which some of these some of these mounds were built in various countries around the world, but I think you're right. Doc Inferno, the good doctor is what I like to call him. He has a good analysis of the ancient Egyptian aspects of, of mount, the mound veneration. But also, I think, again, as I said, the society clearly also has that connection back to ancient Egypt with these obelisks. The obelisks that, in fact, there's obelisks that used to sit in ancient Egypt at you know important sites. I think the ancient city of Heliopolis those were Cleopatra's needles, and one of those ancient obelisks today sits in Central Park, courtesy of some society families.
0: Right, right. Wow. You know, do you know any more to that story of Cleopatra's needle that's over there in in Central Park? Because I've been to Central Park a couple of times, even recently within the past couple of years. Never seen it once. It's in a part of Grand Central that at least I just haven't ventured to yet. You'd be surprised how big central park is but no for
1: sure you're right you have to kind of it's off the beaten path it's it sits about uh, probably say 60 or 80 meters behind the art museum there the modern art museum not the good art museum the modern art museum in central park so you have to you you definitely have to kind of go uh, get a map or be on a specific mission to get there but yeah i've been there probably half a dozen times over the years you know and i even introduced my son to it many years ago teaching him a lot of these things about you know, ancient history of the world and America. So yeah. it's definitely a side to see if you've ever been there and I highly recommend it to yeah, you next time you're down in, in Manhattan, Mark, you should definitely try to get there and check it out. Cause it is, it's very unique I, in and of itself is in a sense art, but I mean, I don't, I think it was had a far greater significance than merely just a piece of art or monument to the ancient Egyptians who constructed that obelisk. And I believe it's somewhere around 20 or I'm sorry, 4,000 years old, I believe. maybe. Wow. Wow. Now, 3, 800 which, 800 years old, which it's, family
0: it's helped bring it over? You said they were connected to the Society of the Cincinnati.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I believe it was the J.P. Morgan family. The Morgans were a society right. family out of New York.
0: Right. Wow. Okay. That checks out. Well, clearly we have a connection there between the mounds and the obelisks. Seems like gender, at the very least, on the maybe the most rudimentary symbolic level, gender is being expressed there with the mound maybe being like the pregnant womb and the obelisk obviously being the erect Phallus, right? So
1: that's you, precisely how I kind of view it over the years. Because if you look at the, like you pointed out, the tales from ancient Egypt, and I believe they might even predate that back to ancient Mesopotamia,
0: the missing phallus of Osiris, right? Right. Wow. Wow. And that's amazing because isn't big part of that story that Osiris's body was chopped into many pieces and spread across the earth? And the obelisk was, well, obviously the phallus was like the missing ingredient, right? She Isis found every part of him aside from that, and that was the final piece. Wow. So you see this myth possibly being hinted at throughout the world. I mean, even modern skyscrapers are a continuation of this same sort of thought process. You know, it's not by accident that they build them, you know, however many 40, 50 stories tall uh, instead of, you know maybe building them underground, right? Or some right. other way, right? Or building no, huge lines yeah, it's like the, the same, Saudis. The same
1: concepts. Oh, I'm sorry to mean to reject there. Yeah, no, it's interject. fine. It's right. fine. Well, I missed the, what was you' saying there at the end I missed that mark
0: well yes. I mean there are other architectural options right I mean we don't have to just go straight up there's the Saudis who are now building that line city so clearly there are other options not that I'm recommending yeah. we live in a line like that but uh, you know no, for
1: sure I mean just look at architecture 100 years ago versus these the yeah uh, I mean they've got more phallic phallic looking over the years all these skyscrapers right. with nothing but concrete and glass and steel yeah it certainly what it seems to be within the same philosophy of what we're talking here. When, when and I would say rockets fall in that same department as well.
0: Yeah, but getting back to our initial query here, so Egypt clearly has the, I guess, laid the groundwork for a lot of this philosophy. But it seems like you know we would be kind of I don't know maybe narrow viewed if we said oh well Egypt's the focal point because this kind of construction has happened even in places that maybe the egyptians never had an influence on i don't know if we could even say that maybe who knows maybe the egyptians were at one point a global culture but yeah yeah, when it comes to like mounds lines
1: that i'm familiar with i mean i mean not to get too far off into the ancient egypt plan but yeah i mean there are actually there's a french archaeologist who lived in central america amongst some of the native tribes down there maybe We'll call it circa 1850 or so, and he uh, he basically developed a theory that through you know through his research and you know different visiting different sites and d- different tribes that that the ancient Egyptian culture began here in America and, and went eastbound and landed in Egypt at some point in time in, in the you know distant past. So there are different varying theories about where you know where did ancient Egypt g- culture really begin and how widespread it was, and I think you know depending on whose theory you want to look at, they're just, you know, they're coming from each direction on the ocean way. So I think it's an intriguing notion because we really don't know in this day and modern age of technology and advancement is we like to presume that we don't have simple answers to who the hell were the ancient Egyptians and where do they come from.
0: Right. And maybe I'm trying to thread the needle through, you know, a very big question that we necessarily don't need to Tackle right off the bat in this conversation, but I think the insinuation that we're both speaking to is that at one point in time, there was an ancient culture that was fairly global, at least enough to spread the knowledge of how to construct mounds across the planet, because we find mounds in Japan, we find mounds in Australia, we find mounds in Africa, we find them in South America, Europe, obviously, Russia... So you know,
1: oh for sure, yeah. If
0: they yeah, are yeah. all over the world, then you know this is either something that's just genetically in us, or it's something that we all at one point communicated. This is a good structure to build, right? I mean, yeah, for
1: sure, yeah. You no, know, I think those are the two options. You're right, yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of lean towards the, uh, the worldwide. You know, it may not have been one culture, right? It may have been intermingling of cultures that they taught each other these. Concepts, whether it be a religious concept, which is what I kind of view these concepts fall within a religion of an ancient culture. These were burial sites, and you know sometimes good burial sites, and sometimes bad. Meaning, sometimes they seem to be like a normal you know cemetery of sorts, or you know gra- you know a grave plot, you know, and sometimes they, they tend to be sites of human sacrifice. So it had very there's varying you know purposes and concepts behind these mounds, but I do view generally as a yeah worldwide culture that was shared and. It was almost like a religious culture that was shared as opposed to some sort of ethnic culture, if you will.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it does feel like there was a spiritual component to it. I mean, a lot of archaeologists, anthropologists explain mounds as simply a burial method, given that people are buried inside of them. And But when you look at what they're buried with, you'd almost think that they had their luggage with them like they had you know a destination in mind right which implies that death was not merely the end it was the beginning of something next so yeah that inherently implies a belief in the afterlife You, you can call that religion spirituality what have you so these mounds they're all over the world and you know, I wonder if groups like the Society of Cincinnati were carrying on a tradition that was much older. I mean, hence the namesake which is Roman. You know, do you think that there was a time when the Romans went around and maybe robbed these mounds or built over them, preserved them, did something with them? I mean, have you looked that into that, you know, portion of history to for evidence of, you know, inter- interaction with mounds?
1: Oh, for sure. I think there's a good there's a good degree of evidence supporting precisely that it's been going on over hundreds of years, maybe not, maybe thousands of years, with these mounds relative to them being important to various groups. You know, digging into the mounds and, and you know grabbing certain contents of the mounds. Largely, there's been a high volume of stone tablets found in these mounds. Seemingly, have you know? Inform- may or may not have information that of importance to some groups. It seems because these stone tablets often disappear right. and or not put on display at, at museums intentionally. So it's a lot of stuff going on around there. But I think that's precisely what goes on. In a sense, I think these mounds do have a spiritual or you know, I mean, almost a magical significance, as you're pointing out with their the mound builders obviously having a view of the afterlife. And I think some of these sites may tie into that with the shapes that they were constructed at them, especially the large geometric shapes mm-hmm. do. And I think maybe this religion has been passed down through the years, through different secret societies in certain regards. I believe right. one being the society of Cincinnati, I think it's commonly within their society that, that these mounds are, you know, is within their ancestry, like the giant human skeletons found in these mounds are their ancient ancestors or some regard. That's kind of how I think their view is. And in these, in, relative to where these mounds have been found. Yeah, I mean, all around the world. The reason why there's confusion, I think, regarding the whole world having mounds is because we call them different names in different countries. I say we, you know, I joke around that times change and languages change, but shit stays exactly the same. And the mounds, I think, are a good example of how that's gotten confused because we call them mounds here, but the, U- the United Kingdom call them barrows or tom- tomuli. And then once you get over to, you know, in Africa, Russia and into that area of Asia, They call them kurgans. So there is a, you know, but if you look at these actual structures of these mounds, whatever you want to call them, kurgans, barrows, tomuli, mounds, they all look the same. They clearly have the same style of construction, especially the oldest ones, the Adena mounds, as we call them in America. They're almost identical to a number of sites in the United Kingdom. In fact, my the bootleg producer of the Operation GCD podcast, Darren the Brit, he and I did a compare, he lives in Liverpool, England. And he and I did a comparative analysis on a podcast a few years back on on the Operation GCD podcast where we did a comparative analysis of Liverpool, England mounds and Liverpool, Ohio mounds. So clearly there was some sort of veneration for the colonists who were setting up, especially places here like Ohio, to not only find a location that reminded them or had similarities or perhaps specific occult knowledge similarities with the mound locations from Liverpool, England, to the new Liverpool, Ohio. So I find the correlation's You know, the fact that they would go to this town in Ohio and establish this town named Liverpool and have these same kind of concepts and build around these mounds, it's not by coincidence, in my opinion. Obviously, it's not a a coincidence theory in that regard for sure.
0: Wow. And let's go back to the names because, you know, it's funny. I was listening to a comedy podcast two weeks ago and somebody called a wheelbarrow a wheelbarrow. And the guy, another guy corrected him and said, no, it's wheelbarrow. And the other guy's, what the hell is a barrow? that's not even a word. And they looked it up and it is a word and it means mound. And I was kind of sitting there. Oh shoot. Look at that. Synchronicity. Mounds are coming up on a podcast that I had, you know, how would I have known that? Right. It's a comedy podcast. There's sure. Very low. No, it's also in, in, it,
1: they're in a similar fashion. What we're just talking about, the, the misconceptions of the language.
0: Well, and then here's another one, which I just looked up. You said tumuli or tumulus and it's interesting that's latin for mound or small hill and if you look at the root we have that word tum we have that in the word "tomb." we have it in the word tumor we have it in the word thumb we have it in thigh and even thousand and it's to bulge or swell so yeah we use this word every day you know and absolutely yep. you look at our hand we're invoking the you know energy of this, so to speak. Wow. And that's, I was going to ask you what the Romans called mounds and here's my answer, tumulus. So that's fantastic. And, you know, people overlook how often, you know, these pieces of landscape architecture, you know, they overlook how significant they are to myths and legends. And, you know, when you bury people of significance in these places, you know, you're, in a way, forcing their memory upon the landscape, right? Rather than being below the ground line to be forgotten and eventually, you know, maybe even, you know, consumed by the soil, the mound kind of preserves it above the, I guess, the soil table, right? So, in a way, you're kind of preserving yourself from decay, which I wonder if that feeds into the thought behind the reincarnation process that like, okay, no, you want to be above this certain level so that the sun, you know, his energy is, uh, you know, I don't know, helping your soul ascend. No,
1: I think you're, yeah, I think you're onto something there with the the philosophy or theology of the mound builders because it's interesting because the physical evidence supports what you're claiming there, Mark, the uh, numerous accounts of, you know, actual scientific excavations of these adena mounds specifically or, or just the colonists as they're, you know, recording these, the building of town histories across from new England all the way through Ohio and, and onto the Midwest right. where the colonists are, you know, building a town and they'll put in their history books in that town that there was these mounds and they dug into these mounds and at the base of it, they, you know, they would discover a seven to nine foot skeleton and in many circumstances the introduction of oxygen to that environment would cause the skeleton to, you know, decay pretty quickly and fall apart as they try to collect them. But I mean, there was plenty of instances where that didn't occur, but it certainly seems to be that there was a focus by the mound builders in the preservation of their
0: deceased mm, people. And there are so many... When you use the term barrow, there are a bunch of different types, bank barrow, bell barrow, bowl barrow, disc, fancy, long, oval, platform, pond, ring, and then the round barrow, which was classically created by the people of Britons, and then later the Romans, Vikings, and Saxons. And this is sort of answering a question that you answered and I asked earlier, which is like how did this tradition of kind of conquering the mounds, you know, come to be? And it seems like we have our answer here where the people of Britain were taken over by the Romans. And, you know, during that process, there's a lot of cultural exchange, you know, that goes on. And I no, think... Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, the Romans are famously known to go back to, Brit- the, you know, taking over Britain back to, you know, our modern era of the calendar dating back to the first century.
0: Yeah. And here's a little... Anecdote here, the Six Hills are a collection of Roman barrows situated alongside the Old Great North Road on Six Hills Common in Stevenage, Hertfordshire, England. They are classed as scheduled ancient monuments and are protected by law, the largest surviving Roman barrow group in England. So not quite seven hills, but there's six hills, (laughs) right? I mean, that's pretty damn close to our Cincinnati
1: Absolutely. No, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. Those are the, actually, those are the ones that was noted to you before the, what I call just the, the UK barrows, something that that's what I was referring to the oldest ones over there. This it's right along on Roman road. So when Rome took over England, they kind of just built the road right next to it. And they, you know, even in their accounts, they said, we didn't build these. We don't know. You know somebody else built them before we got here, but we built this road is kind of how the Romans documented it in their history. But yeah, they're as old as the Adina mounds supposedly. So that's depending on who you talk to, it's, 1000 BC to 200 AD or 500 BC to about 400 AD. I mean, there's some, some disputes on the precise time frame there, but yeah. So Mm. long before the Romans took over England, somebody was up there building mounds and, you know, and it's interesting because within the UK, you know, I think it's actually in Wales, I believe Stonehenge, is that correct? Wales is in, I mean, it's not in England, but it's on the UK, you know, Island there, the big Island, if you will
0: that i'm not i don't know off the top of my head i'm looking it up right now it's yeah, uh, it says it's in, it's in, Wales, in the salisbury plain in wiltshire england oh so it is in england okay
1: yeah. maybe the stones from there came from Wales. anyhow it's over there in on the in the uk but so obviously besides the old ones there on the roman road they are actually identical so you can compare those mounds to the the mound city national park in chillicothe ohio which is the ground zero for the Adena mounds here in America. Mm-hmm. But you can compare those mounds from the Roman Road in the UK there that are the, on record, supposed to be the oldest ones there, that you can compare those to the Mound City part, mounds in Chillicothe and they're identical. I mean, it's, you know, it's now, well, they're similar. No, I mean, they had the six in a row. They have another set of those in Mound City that are six in a row like that. Wow. It's you know striking comparisons you're looking at you know if you were to try to look at a like you know, a blind test and not tell the person where they were i mean you could you'd mistake either location for the other one you know what i mean
0: well and it clearly that implies that there's either a you know coincidence afoot, foot a very Pretty improbable great. one or there's some sort of technique here that you know is being implemented in multiple places very far away from each other i should also point out that the grass, that with back to the six hills in Hertfordshire, England, sure. the grass around the burial mounds is of considerable age. It includes species such as bird's foot trefoil, mouse ear, hawkweed, harebells, whitlow grass, and slender clover, which are not found in the more modern gla- grasslands nearby. So even the soil has a different quality to it, enough to preserve, you know, grasses that are you know, able to survive there and not in other places where modern grasses have taken over. And here's That's awesome.
1: That's a good point there, Mark. I I actually didn't know that.
0: Well, and I've heard that the mounds are infused with, you know, blood or something. Like, this is... I don't remember exactly who on my podcast mentioned this. You know, their perspective may vary, but... when the topic of sacrificial mounds came up, the point of blood in the soil was made that, you know, there are like human genes in the soil, right? That's, that was their point. And that would facilitate enhanced connection between a living person and maybe communion with their ancestors, because there's like the light codes from their DNA in the soil. So clearly there's something with the physical soil of these mounds that's worth looking into i mean just from that point and then also the different species of grasses being able to survive there but regardless of those more scientific explanations Mounds overwhelmingly have a paranormal association, and this Six Hills Place is no different. The local legend holds (laughs) that they were the work of the devil who, sitting one day looking down on the Great North Road, began to amuse himself by heaving clods of earth at the passerbyers. He missed six times and in a temper threw a seventh clod over his shoulder, hitting the spire of the gravelly church and knocking it askew. The spire is crooked to this day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, That's awesome. they have, I think this is common. Anytime Christians are in an area where these sorts of structures, landscape features are, they tend to have some sort of local lore that builds up around them. But I mean, does that strike you as significant? I mean, the, the, these kind of stories are just part and parcel with mounds, right?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Mark, that strikes me as totally normal when you're talking about mound business, I generally, I jokingly state my general thesis on mounds is just weird shit happens in and around mound areas and locations. Right. I live amongst a high concentration of that within the the old Dina network of mounds here in Ohio. And again, those are some of the, the oldest and those locations seem to have some of the, some of the, you know, the high weirdness activities on a, you know, in a very high volume of those activities as well. Right. Yeah, it certainly that doesn't strike me at all. I think it's quite funny that they have that paranormal activity around the Hertfordshire mounds in the UK. Because I think, with, back to my point with Stonehenge as well, in the UK and how old the mound culture is there, the Beaker people who were allegedly, you know, or at least by some are argued to be the creators of Stonehenge, were, were a mound culture that built mounds in around Stonehenge. And the reason they're called the beaker people is because when they excavated those mounds, they found broken pottery. So they just called them the beaker people. So it's, once again, a completely ridiculous way to name these mound builder cultures. But the mound builder culture in and around Stonehenge was the beaker people. And I believe Stonehenge has a very paranormal reputation to it as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, many people see orbs. They also, given the landscape around Stonehenge, the people report crop circles being formed in the area. And some people have analyzed those crop circles and found that the, uh, the plants themselves are broken in a way that you couldn't explain by physical force. It's almost like the plants are radiated at the stalk and fall over just from like a, an energy beam or light or something like that. I mean, I don't know exactly that study, but it's out there. I remember learning about that. So there's something to or these crop circles, but I don't necessarily think they have to be associated with UFOs. When I learned that, I wondered if maybe there's some sort of energies in the ground that can be unleashed however you know and these energies of the ground as we learn in metaphysics have a consciousness of their own maybe this is how they communicate with these symbols in the grasses i mean it seems like that's completely plausible that a a land mass which comprises of platonic solids and all sorts of geometry could spit back out a geometric pattern with some sort of message behind it i mean maybe that's fantastical thinking on my part but i often wonder if those crop circles are coming from you know below rather than from above
1: i think that's a great thought mark i hadn't really considered it but i'm i'll tell you right now i don't have any i don't subscribe to any concepts of aliens from outer space i mean something's making those shapes in the ground so you got to start asking where it's coming from and well, that and, sounds like a pretty good suggestion to me. Well,
0: and people always make this point of, well, how, you know, why would someone make a crop circle? You can only see it from an airplane. Well, maybe you could see it from a high enough mound or, you know, maybe you could see it from a high enough point of elevation, right? I, yeah, yeah.
1: You never, you know, I mean, you never know again. I think that's a, it's at least a, you know, a plausible scenario as opposed to some air, alien air, aircraft landing there and, and causing it, you know what I mean?
0: Well, <laughs> just- and, Speaking of aircraft, we should head over to America where allegedly the flight was invented in a place that is just full of mounds. That's Ohio, right? The Wright brothers were sure, Ohio. You know, it was
1: actually their whole training area for the Wright brothers where they essentially, you know, it's often called the birthplace of flights, but flight. But technically, I believe Kitty Hawk, North Carolina is where they actually did the first flight with all their training area it was in dayton ohio and literally on a bunch of mounds it's not even near a mound it's they literally developed the ability for man to flight on mounds in dayton ohio which is now part of the that specific area is now part of wright patterson air force base which is
0: also intentionally
1: built on a mound complex
0: wow now Maybe the more practical, pragmatic skeptics would say, "Well, yeah, they're building airplanes. Of course, they're going to fly it off of off of a mound because that makes sense, <laughs> right? You have a platform surface off of a certain elevation with, a, you know, a certain decline that that might be advantageous if you're testing out airplanes." But I would say, you know, those folks aren't considering the fact that. In Native American lore, this is something that I've read about. The mounds were used at certain ceremonial points, you know, to leave their physical body, go into their astral body, and take flight. So <laughs> there is a sort of, yeah. you know, there's a, there might be a pattern there. I mean, I don't know how true that is. That could just be like New or Native right. American <laughs> stuff,
1: <laughs> but. No, but, but there's. I mean, it's definitely. I think it falls within the scope of the mystical aspects of, or potential mystical aspects of these mounds, relative to the quote-unquote mound builders, right. you know, the folks who constructed these these the ancient architect as I like to call the ancient architecture of America, yeah. specifically to, the, to our ones here in America that we're discussing right now.
0: Well, and you make the point in your notes here that you know very important groups and many organizations have interest in these mounds we just kind of i mean i this is wasn't in your notes i just kind of thought of that whole wright brothers connection off the top yeah, of my that's head great there.
1: Thought, yeah you're but, spot on target mark good good pick up there yeah i mean i didn't include that in notes but i mean i didn't really consider it but yeah that is well it's right in line with anymore, your, your sure.
0: it's right in line with your point i mean it, these mounds seem to collect energy and wealthy or powerful people For intuition or maybe just dumb luck or maybe knowing the secret, you know, they find these places and build there, right? You have a couple examples. You gave us the example of the Air Force Base, obviously the Wright brothers. But you said here in the notes that Milford, Ohio settled circa 1833 or 1823. And the Freemasons built a lodge on a mound site. Two years later, the Jesuits then built a mound or a compound on a mound complex site. And then. I'm sure this was much later, but then Walmart came along and built their store on a mound site. Right.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. That didn't happen. Yeah. you're Right. Much later. (laughs) We're talking about a 180 year difference between the Walmart construction on a mound site and the initial settlement of the town of Milford here in Claremont County, Ohio, which again is a very important area to the society of Cincinnati.
0: Are you in the Milford area?
1: Yeah, it's, it's probably about five miles here down the road from my house. In fact, the individual we reference later, our mutual associate and friend, the Good Doctor, Doctor Inferno, he he's a big fan of Milford, Ohio. He specifically likes that town. That's now, I say that because every time he's come to Cincinnati to come look at do some mound tours along with myself and Steven Snyder, he the Good Doctor finds himself lost in Milford, Ohio. It's a kind of a joke I make with him because I tell him the mounds are attracting him there. He's stuck to the you know, he's getting called in by the mounds.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm from I think the oldest Milford in America milford connecticut absolutely yeah (laughs) there's another i mean there's a milford for every state but there's a milford in massachusetts not older than the one in connecticut so yeah i'm from the oldest milford that's a little interesting personal synchronicity here that milford comes up milford ohio (laughs) but uh, yeah you when it comes to
1: milford is an interesting town it was a very it was a focal point of the society cincinnati's early surveys and mapping of the mountains they were very interested in Milford, Ohio, and between, I'd say, 1798 or so, 1797, and maybe 1804, the society members had mapped and surveyed the mounds in and around Milford four times. So, it was a seemingly an important site for them early on. You know, folks like General Lytle, he was one of the ranking generals there in, in Washington's army. He he was the first man to set foot in the, from the society, I believe, into uh, Milford, Ohio, Well, what was not yet Milford, Ohio, but would be, you know, 25 or so years later. But yeah, so it's seemingly that town, that area, those mountains have been of unique interest since the start of this country. And I can kind of see why, I mean, the, according to the, these are these maps and surveys, the general idol and his, some of his troops did, they, these are some of the oldest arch- documents in the national archives here in America, the, you know, in DC, that they're at the Earth national archives. So these are seemingly important documents that were, Preserved in the National Archives from day one, so would given the number of trips to to the area at that you know for the society at that time, drawing multiple maps and surveys of these mounds. Again, it's not an easy trek to get to Milford, Ohio. They're obviously you know on canoes and going through what was then the wild Ohio country, still post Revolutionary War timeframe. That was this was all you know. There was a lot of obviously a lot of Native tribes, and some of those Native tribes were you know, the back to British. So there was obviously still some tension through areas of the wild Ohio country at that time, but the menace of the society of Cincinnati had an apparent interest. And I would say one of those interests of getting in and around the Milford, Ohio mound locations and mapping them was a, was the infamous Hanukkah or Menorah mound that was located just downstream from Milford, Ohio along the, uh, the little Miami river.
0: Wow. Wow, yeah, and for non-Ohioans, Milford is right outside of Cincinnati, so it's down in that southwest corner of Ohio. And, yeah, Miami, which was the name of a tribe. now, you know, people hear that and think Florida, but Miamiville is over there too, in Milford. Wow, there are tons of little interesting places in this area. See now, when I heard the Jesuit thing, I thought of the Monks' Mound. Which I believe that's over in the you know the big mound complex in-, in
1: Cahokia. Yeah, Cahokia East St. Louis, Illinois, not East St. Louis, Missouri. Because when I first went there, I didn't look on the map specifically. The first time I, when I was approaching the area, I was like, "Oh wait, this is across the river. This is in Illinois. There's a St. Louis, Illinois, and that's where that is." Right. Also, lock your doors and windows if you're going there. That's my warning to folks of the interwebs. It is not a safe area of town
0: where the mounds are. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's real questionable.
0: Really? Well, see, and then that's another thing with these places is that, you know, for worse or for better, you know, neglected or sort of preserved, they're full of energy. And I think, you know, maybe that's the result of the a site like that being neglected or even just not used for the right purpose. You know, you see these sort of negative energies culminating there. Instead of positive ones, because it's like a battery, so to speak. Maybe a battery doesn't quite work like that.
1: But. No, it's some sort of, you know, I mean, that's a, almost a good reference point. It's some sort of node of energy, right? Like it's right. some sort of place in the earth where the earth is producing various different forms of energy they're not producing in other places. And I think that I suspect the mound builders had some way to detect that, it's no different than they had technology to make, you know, Enormous straight lines with these mounds that exceed the size that we can use with the uh, you know laser targeting for surveying equipment. You know, you know, modern digital surveying equipment can't shoot a line forty and fifty acres with a straight line, but the mound builders could. So I suspect they had some sort of way to detect that more precisely they were putting these mounds relative right. to you know what the energies the earth is producing there. Yeah, I, yeah I think that's really what it boils down to. I think there's, that's one of the quote unquote occult concepts of. That have been passed down throughout the millennia relative to these mounds. And I think folks like the Walden family who own the Walmart corporation have that knowledge as well, because they've on more than one occasion, not just in Milford, Ohio, they have built Walmart shopping centers on mound locations. And it's not just because the real estate was there, it was cheaper because the, you know, obviously a lot of these mound sites are near bodies of water, often the confluence of more than, you know, one river wherever the rivers meet, but so oftentimes they're in a floodplain, but then it goes above and beyond that. Cause they've Walmart has actually fought numerous lawsuits to build their stores on specific mound sites. One of which occurred in, I believe it was Columbus, Georgia. And they settled the lawsuit after I believe two years, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a quick and inexpensive operation of trying to squeeze their store on this specific site, but the lawsuit was settled. The local native tribe down there in Northern Georgia, and it would, the settlement was they could Walmart could build on the mound, but all the contents of the mound would go into a museum inside the Walmart. So you can visit a Walmart and go to a mound museum at the same time down there in northern Georgia.
0: Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> now, I know of the Etowah mounds in Georgia. Are those the same mounds that the Walmart had con- conquested?
1: No, and but I'm glad you brought that up because so what happens is we have a very limited resources for a lot. When I say we, generally speaking, folks of the interwebs trying to research mounds or look at mounds. I mean, you go to Wikipedia and they're only going to list a uh, very small percentage of the mounds that still exist. Let alone you know the maps of the mounds that used to exist, which you know there are some surveys and studies that are available publicly still from the Smithsonian or stuff the society you know produced again back in the National Archives, but. There's not like a, an all-inclusive source, so it's always, you know, you can identify some mounds over here and some mounds over there, but, you know, relative to anything that's, you know, largely available through any, you know, modern sources of information like Wikipedia, I mean, it's a very cursory, you know, treatment that they give mounds on, on in Wikipedia and, and other, you know, other sources like that, because it'll list some. I'm familiar with the Ottawa site you're referring to, but there are, I assure you, there's hundreds of other sites that still exist down there today, and Thousands, tens of thousands that used to exist in, you know, in America's ancient past. And we know that just again from, you know, again, surveys from, you know, the society dating back to the start of this country. They, you know, that's one great resource. But again, the colonization of a lot of these towns across America, even in places in the south, you know, down in Georgia, they, there seemed to be an interest amongst the colonists. Who were establishing towns to to keep a record of these mounds and what they discovered in in excavating them, right? And, you know, there long seems to be a focus on making sure we at least preserve that data, if we're not going to preserve the mound.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and I should be all well familiar because I have in front of me in my lap Gregory, Doctor Gregory Little's Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Indian Mounds and Earthworks.
1: Oh, nice. That sounds like a good book. I'll have to check that one out. I'm not familiar.
0: Oh, my. Well, yeah, definitely. It is kind of what you're describing, although, you know, uh, Gregory Little is not somebody who's working for the government or anything. He is a doctor, but he put together this amazing encyclopedia, and I'll tell you, there's mounds in... Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, Washington, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. And that was not easy to read all the states that fast. (laughs) Nice. That was awesome. You sound like a
1: Johnny Cash song. (laughs) I've been everywhere. That's, I'm pretty sure that's what he <laughs> yeah. just starts labeled on the states. But no, that's uh, that's awesome. I'll have to check that book out. It sounds like a good
0: one. Yeah, and that's the funny thing is so many people have heard of the mounds in Ohio. They've heard of the mounds in Illinois. They've probably even heard of maybe the mounds in Georgia. But to know that there are mounds in all those states i just listed i mean as far away from each other as maine and wyoming or maine and california i mean so all across the 50 states we have mounds and you have a great point like not many people have made an effort to go and point these out to people you know save for a few places where it is a prominent kind of oh hey visit here and check out the mounds they are kind right, of like right. the there fog. are a
1: couple sites like that. Like you mentioned, Coke is kind of one of those. That's a very large complex. And again, the great, uh, I think as you're referring to the mound that reminds you there was the Jesuits, the Jesuits reminded you about that site. Right. And that's right. because the Monk's Mound is named after the Cistercian monks. Uh, they are yes. Roman Catholic but they're the, they're the ones who started the the Knights Templar. That was the Cistercian monks.
0: Yeah, and right you know, the you're this, I think you're the second person to correct me there, unless you corrected me on that last time <laughs> we talked. But but yeah, I should know that. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting that different religious groups have seen the value in these sites and saw the creator of divi- divinity in these sites. Because, I mean, oh, it, for sure. yeah, I think yeah, that's I just a natural... Human instinct, but uh, when it comes to all of these variety of mounds, I mean, there are just so many. What, let's see, because when it comes to the farthest back we can look in America, it goes to the woodland culture. That's just what archaeologists have named them, right? I mean, that's as far back as they date the arrowheads and all the other stone tools that they attribute to the Native Americans i mean sure i agree that's the generally
1: accepted you know, science folks stuff i have a lot of problems with that you know well I mean,
0: and let's get into why because i think i agree with you and i don't know quite yet what your problems are but i think we both can nice. say that the mounds are much older than that right i mean is that yeah i'm assuming I mean, that certainly seems
1: think? that way i mean but just based on their own theories of these these woodland era natives that lived in america i mean, like you point out the stone points and the arrowheads and whatnot you know, very rudimentary tools and whatnot is how it's supposed to go. So, these people aren't very intelligent, is what science folks or modern era are, are insinuating. Whereas the actual oldest evidence we have, these mounds, shows a, an extremely high level of intelligence and understanding of mathematics and astronomy and basically how the universe operates is embedded into these mounds. A lot of the mounds are essentially a calendar for the lunar cycles, the solar cycle, the season changes the equinoxes i mean these are all things the mound builders understood and embedded that the that understanding into their actual architecture of their mounds. which these aren't rudimentary tool type of people you know what i mean
0: absolutely yeah yeah no uh, n- that's the i guess maybe we can explain that as a bias of the 19th century in the 18th century 16th 17th century i mean as far back as we go people had maybe a more biblical understanding of creation of the races which says that there were maybe two groups of man created in different stages and i think for a while people thought that you know oh well certain people on the planet are that first group and oh well of course we're the better group right no matter who you are you're always going to think that well we were the we're the better group and everyone else is the other group right so
1: it's the same story out of the colonization of Africa right the Hutus and the Tutsis right
0: well and that's the thing and we did get into that with Doc the great doctor (laughs) so I'm glad that you said that because that is clear to me now I might not have got that before talking to him but when it comes to, you know, this idea, I wonder if it's closer to what I was talking with another guest that Stephen introduced me to, Paul Stobbs, who talks about the Nephilim and how the Nephilim were this other. You know, they were here. They were the offspring of the fallen angels. Then the flood came. They all died. Some of them survived. But I wonder, you know, is this possibly why we're finding giant humans in these mounds because here in your notes you say that the society of Cincinnati venerated Cincinnatus and he was connected to some of the oldest mounds and you've said that they found giant skeletons in some of these mounds right so these mounds with skeletons were important to the society of the Cincinnatus, Cincinnati am I getting that right?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I kind of, I proposed maybe that Cincinnatus was one of these such giant human skeleton folks that, that roamed the earth here, not like dinosaurs, but like normal humans roamed the earth, you know, back in 500 BC, which is allegedly when he, you know, this character Cincinnati was a historical figure at that time. Right. Now I just, I find it interesting that the Society of Cincinnati venerates this individual as the main figure of their entire group and they also highly have this high, great veneration for The mounds of that era, the quote-unquote Adina mounds, in fact, again, the societies who gave the name Adina to these alleged mound builders who built these oldest mounds here in America, and I just find it very odd in a very, you know, coincidental way, if you want to look at it that way, I don't, but the, the man that's venerated by the society just happened to live at the same time that these oldest mounds are, you know, where the giant human skeletons are found at the base, buried at the base of, that's the same precise time or same approximate time that these mounds were built, so... I tend to find, tend to believe there's a greater connection there between those two topics. But, you know, granted, I don't have a lot of evidence to support that other than the obvious, you know, time frame being the same time frame, you know, approximately 500 BC.
0: Right. Now, aside from that, I mean, is there anything that, might I mean, to me, when I hear that, I think maybe this Cincinnati's character was one of these Nephilim because he yeah. he has this kind of lore of being like this great person who took leadership and then gave it up. And that kind of falls in line with, you know, what a lot of these people believed in, which was like the divine right to rule and the gods gave man that right, and who were the gods, and which men got that right, and it was the men who had the bloodline that connected them to these ancient Nephilim. I mean, I know I'm going off of what Paul believes. This is his sort of perspective that I'm sharing. A lot of these ideas are kind of new to me when it comes to the Nephilim, but through that lens, it is interesting to interpret the society of Cincinnati, but we have to fold in and even more, if we could even say more, even greater infamous group, more well-known rather, more infamous than the Cincinnatus, the Knights Templar. How do they fit into this whole equation? Because I've had past guests on the show, Freddie Silva, tell me, that there are certain interesting caves and things like that in places in Europe and Portugal and Spain that the Knights Templar might have been inside of and used as forts. But Were they also a part of this mound hunting sort of endeavor?
1: Oh, for sure, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, I was uh, looking forward to bringing up the topic of the Templar because I was going to loop it back into your question earlier in regards to you know, perhaps it's being a, you know, like a bloodline, as you've pointed out now a couple of times that, that perhaps the legends of the, ne- the Nephilim are, are in fact, have some validity to them and this divine, the, you know, as you pointed out the divine right of Kings, it seems to be a concept that has, you know, traversed, you know, hundreds of years within these same bloodlines. So I think you're right on target in regards to that. And you were asking about the society previously at the, towards the beginning of the conversation and kind of where they get this knowledge base from. And again, I think it's the bloodline, right? So if you trace the society members' ancestry back, you're going to find your, their descendant from the Knights Templar. For example, George Washington is descended from, I believe it's 24, or, or he's either descended or related to, I believe, I'm not, it might be descended and related to, you know, as far as distant cousins, that kind of thing as well, to 24 of the 25, quote unquote, you know, Robert Barons, the the Knights Templar that held King John hostage, as the legend goes, and forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which the Magna Carta, even modern day historians view the U.S. Constitution as the Magna Carta 2.0. So we're talking about the same bloodlines. For example, Robert de Ross, the Templar that was largely res- attributed to being responsible for Magna Carta is George Washington's, I believe it's like 14th great-grandfather. So we're talking about the precise same bloodline, 500 years apart, establishing the same you know, contractual agreements with the quote-unquote other royal bloodline folk. For example, in the Magna Carta era, King John, you know, to uh, and then later with George Washington in the King George era, you know, within England, again, these families, despite, you know, the founding fathers or the Templars not being, you know, the actual kings or anything else like that. These are cousins, you know, amongst these different groups spanning across 500 different years doing the exact same activities. So we can kind of establish that there are things that get passed down through these bloodlines. So I don't think it's too far on a limb to consider the, this sort of mound philosophies or theologies or religion, however you want to look at it is just another one of those things that are being passed down. And quite honestly, the Templars seem to have a great interest contemporary to their times in regard to the mounds. They, you know, the Templar, they were extremely intelligent, you know, men who had a deep understanding of mathematics and astronomy themselves. And as a result of that, they were able to navigate all around the world in their ships. So obviously again, we're talking about the mound builders who again, Tracing the ancestry back, I do pe- believe these folks believe that that's where their ancestry is amongst the mound builders. So again, there's another example of things that are maybe getting passed down through these bloodlines over time that aren't generally accepted practices and education or knowledge that, especially back in the 1200s, you know I don't think it was very common to find people well advanced in mathematics and astronomy, but the Templars were, and as a result of that, they could travel the world, and you know they tend to seem to have had an interest in the mounds then and. Relative to the mounds in the United Kingdom, where in large part the Templar stronghold was out of Scotland, especially in their later years of existence, you know, and in northern Northern England area, well, these a lot of the Templar knights they built castles on top of the mounds, almost like they were protecting the mound. I mean, granted it could have a military advantage, I will admit, but it seemed they had a greater interest in preserving the contents of that mound is seemingly uh, how I view that, at least. And if I can add one more note to that, relative to some modern technology, I'm descended as well from the same man I referenced before, Robert DeRoss, same as George Washington is, and I have a variety of other Knights Templar heritage as well, no different than most of the members of the society families. I'm obviously not a member of the society, but being of families of the society, in my family tree that, you know, all these society Cincinnati families, again, date back to their ancestry to the Templar. And, Relative to Clan Vance, there was a number of Clan Vance Templar back during the, uh, the Templar eras. You know, it's definitely, you know, I could see it in my tree. And when I did a DNA, one of my DNA tests I did a few years ago, the uh, DNA claimed that my paternal DNA haplogroup, so the, uh, the, you know, identifier, the six digit or whatever identifier that modern science folk have, a, have attributed to people that lived in and around the Stonehenge area there. I mentioned before the Beaker people. So they've, they have their identifier, but allegedly my, my half haplogroup group goes back to the Beaker, Beaker peoples. And you know, what we're talking about here with these bloodlines seems, in, in my opinion, and seemingly the only reasonable conclusion to reach there is there's a long history of, of mound activity dating back to the Beaker people through the Templars, through the Society of Cincinnati. And, you know, I was able to kind of have a perspective of that by understanding where my haplogroup group originated from and seeing that there's all these mound cultures in my family tree ever since then. You know, I do think that these things do get passed on through esoteric and secret societies like the Society of Cincinnati. But again, I don't think they're the only game in town. I just think, you know, relative to, you know, a lot of the preservation of the mounds and the documentation of the mounds, they're the best ones at that. Where other groups, I'm sure, have similar interests to the society, but maybe aren't as public with their interests, if you will.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and you know, speaking of family heritage, I am six foot eight, so who knows? Maybe I'm related <laughs> to some of these giant skeletons that they have found. Tell, let's get into that, because there there are many people who have found these skeletons. You don't hear much about people finding skeletons nowadays, but there was a time when this was common. George Washington recorded locating seven foot tall giant human skeletons. While serving as a colonel in the British Army during the construction of Fort Loudon in Winchester, Virginia, that's one yep, for form sure. he, yep. makes, he
1: documented that. And when he was when he was a military officer for the British Army, Yep. but that's a really under you know not really well known story of George Washington. That you know something he documented in his journals that you know that is uh, that most people don't know about the man. I'd say that's up at the top of the list.
0: Wow! And here's another interesting point: New England Giants, the Rockingham, Vermont had a couple seven foot giant skeletons on display and then in deerfield massachusetts they had giants on display until the 1990 native american grave protection and repatriation act which yeah
1: so i mean there's a good example right there mark yeah for sure there's a good example right there of a modern i mean granted it was given the purposes for that U.S. active U.S. Congress to repatriate the contents and the skeletons from these amounts back to native tribes, the ones that have been excavated in years past and put in museums like the museum there and not too far from you in Tearfield Mass. That's what probably about two hours to your north.
0: Yeah, we've been there. There's an interesting geological site called Shelburne Falls where you have these interesting sort of carved out, very circular carved out depressions in the rock and this was historically a meeting place for the mohawks and different other native american tribes but yeah deerfield there's a big power company now that uses that river to power all of massachusetts
1: oh nice maybe they have a cold understanding of some of the energy there as well right. then since they are the power company right but yeah the supposedly i think they still have some sort of recreation of what the the nine foot tall skeleton they used to have in that museum in deerfield I believe they have a you know like a plaster kind of, you know, a nine foot tall figure that they, you know, estimated the appearance of the skeleton that used to be on display there. But as a result of the nineteen ninety act from U.S. Congress, the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act, the giant human skeletons from around the entire US were suddenly swooped off. And, you know, again, the official story is it was a sincere effort to return these the contents of these mounds, these giant human skeletons to native tribes. But the problem I have with that is most native tribes don't claim to have been the mound builders. So that in and of itself, I think, is somewhat of a suspect excuse. But what it did do was hide all of these skeletons that have been in museums for decades, if not, you know, 100 plus years in some examples. And suddenly they're no longer on display. And that's something that seemed to the Smithsonian, an effort the Smithsonian started engaging in and around I'd say circa 1875, they started seemingly having a real problem maintaining account of the giant human skeletons that were being uncovered in in mounds across America during, again, the kind of the push westbound and the height of colonization across states like Illinois and Indiana and Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. I mean, all, you know, very high concentration of mounds. So there was a lot of things being uncovered around that time that seemed to be kind of the tipping point where the Smithsonian quit keeping a good account because, you know, there's plenty of corresponding and accounts to support that, you know, and within their own literature, their own actual official reports of excavations, the Smithsonian that is corresponding New York Times article saying, look what the Smithsonian found. So if you have the science scientists for the Smithsonian writing it in their official reports and, you know, granted, I know the, Media, especially the New York Times, doesn't have a great history of doing great journalism these days. But you know, at one point in time, they were revered as the the official paper of America, which I think they kind of still hold that title. But nonetheless, the point is that there there are corresponding points of evidence showing that there were, you know, no, no shortage of accounts of even the Smithsonian finding these giant human skeletons in their own excavations, and again losing them apparently, or hiding them beyond the public's purview, never to be seen by the public again. That much is inconclusive, but, you know, fast forward years later to 1990, and U.S. Congress is essentially doing the same thing to this act of legislation. And again, the giant human skeletons on display in many museums from Deerfield, Massachusetts, all the way to the Catalina Islands off the coast of Los Angeles in California. I mean, museums in between. So there was no shortage of these on display prior to 1990, but since 1990, it's basically been memory-hold.
0: Right, right. Yeah, most people, I would venture to guess, don't know or are unaware of the pre-Columbian impact that other civilizations had on America. Not to say that the Native Americans didn't have any part in the mounds, but to your point, most Native American tribes don't take credit for any of the mounds. They themselves have legends of interacting with the mound builders, but they'd say that they were not the mound builders in most cases. And there may be, you know, some small you know tribes that Don't get a lot of press that maybe we just don't know about. But I mean, I've had Native Americans on this podcast. My friend Lauren Jeffries, who's going to be on the podcast again very soon, he's expressed that same exact point. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And he's even told me a good assessment you got there. You know, I think when we call them Indian burial mounds, I think people just assume that the natives claim ownership in building these or at least their heritage, right? Well,
0: and there are examples of. I think effigy mounds up in Wisconsin that, you know, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think those have a different purpose aside from burial mounds and those don't, you know, have skeletons buried in them. Again, I could be wrong, but
1: no, you're spot on Mark. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, there are different, so there are varying types of mounds, obviously like the effigy mounds, a great example because it's, it is a mound built in effigy of a, of some animal and it's in the shape of that animal. Well, and And I wonder as to the burial mounds, which are just conical things. And then you have different variations of the burial mounds and you have, then you have the later apparent, apparently called Fort ancient mounds, even though that again is a bit of a misnomer because people in our modern era just to claim these, that someone used it as a fort. So they're, they were old. So they're fort ancient. You see how, Ridiculous, that name gets pretty quickly, doesn't it?
0: Right. Well, it does seem like people are just kind of lumping and brushing this aside, lumping it together and brushing it aside. And, you know, I've had a guest on the podcast who's educated at Oxford. His name's Christopher McIntosh, and he's written a book called Beyond the North Wind. And his book explores the theory that there may have been a from north to south cultural expansion through Europe and that there was a culture that flourished in the north before maybe a cold period that we're now still in where the north pole is at the temperature that is currently at he's expressing the theory that there was a time when it was much warmer there and there were cultures that existed there and traveled through the area and They obviously would have had to move south when it got colder. And those are the cultures that you see in Russia, North America, and Europe. Northern Europe specifically, but most of Europe, even like France and Spain, have sort of impact from these cultures. And if you look, you'll see the same stone structures and mounds all around these areas. Yeah, I wonder maybe these giant skeletons are, you know, Vikings or whoever the Vikings came from. I mean, Vikings is kind of a uh, like the samurai of Japan, right? They weren't like a specific type of different person it was a, more of a job or an occupation
1: well, well I don't know. i'm glad you brought that up because i was actually you just read my mind that was the point i was going to make and you're slightly off target but that's a good point with relative to the samurai they actually were an ethnic group and it's strange to me because huh. when you're mentioning like you just were we don't understand quite the, the cultural you know traveling of ancient folk and how there's definitely some theories that to you know challenge some of more, more modern you know common you know quote unquote commonly understood you know, you know, manner in which the world was populated, and direction in direction which folks traveled, but the uh, yeah, the, there's actually a lot of correlations between the the old, the ancient Norse folks who were, you know, the Vikings there in the Scandinavian region in Northern Europe there, and the samurai folk of Northern Japan in that area of what is now Russia, right, right. on the eastern side of Asia.
0: Well, and so I like, should stand corrected because I don't. Now that I think about, it I don't. I think I just misspoke there, but. Christopher McIntosh was talking about the Russian Vikings and.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not familiar with that then, but I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear about the Russian Vikings.
0: Well, essentially they were Vikings who went into Russia and they went down the, I think the Danube river or wh- whichever river goes down into the Ukraine. And uh, yeah, that's that whole area has a lot of people who can trace their ancestors back to the Viking. But you know, I think the same is true for the native Americans where then we have evidence of the Vikings here in North America. So why wouldn't the Vikings have stuck around and intermingled the same way they did in different areas in Europe where you have now like places in the Ukraine or places in Kazakhstan or places in, you know, Russia where you have pockets of people who are Viking, right? They have that Viking heritage.
1: Absolutely, and all those places you just named there in that area—they all have kurgans, whereas that's their name for mountains in that mm-hmm. part of the world. But wow. yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of actual correlations that we made through these groups. I didn't know about the Russian Vikings, but if they're from the Viking heritage, then they have the same physical traits. That I was going to compare to the samurai class. So they're on the eastern side of Asia in Japan. The samurai actually—they don't look that Japanese. They were the Ainu ethnic group of Japan. A-I-N-U. And strangely enough, you know, they have red hair, they have blue eyes. They were experts on, you know, assaults, military-style assaults on horseback. They well, were they, expert swordsmen. I So wonder, you can draw a lot of the correlations between the Norse folks who would later become the Templar folks, you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, I wonder, maybe you haven't listened to my interview with Yoshi Obayashi, who has, he was born in Japan Although he's Korean, he's a Zionichi Japanese. He told me about the Ainu, and I oh, nice. was, I was thinking about that, and I'm like, I wonder maybe the Vikings go there far enough in the past, and over time, you know, because of the area they're in, they start to you know adapt to the environment and have what we would consider more Asian features, right? Their eyes start to of. Av- av- You know, adapt to the environment or whatever, and maybe they look more similar to what it looks like to be Japanese. But they're as you said, with red hair and other features, Yoshi used the term they look more European than anything.
1: Oh, for sure, no, they definitely do look more European. And if you kind of, I mean, not to get too far back in the history of the uh, history of the Templar, going back to the you know the Normans, you know the Norman invasion of the UK, those so they would be the, the ancestry of the Templar and. The Normans were simply just the kind of the Christianized Vikings that had established themselves there in Normandy, France. So, these were, again, these were all seafaring people with a great understanding of how to navigate the high seas by, you know, having an understanding of astronomy. So, these were things that the Templar later, you know, inherited from, again, their ancestors and their bloodline and this knowledge that was passed down to their families. So... For the Vikings to have sailed over to, you know, as far away as the other side of Asia, that's by no means to me, it sounds, you know, it sounds very plausible. You know, it's, I, I would expect that, them to have done that, you know, so I, you know, I would expect to see folks over there in the Northern, you know, part of Japan, again, in the Eastern side of Russia to have these Norwegian or Nordic, you know, physical characteristics. And again, they seem to all have the same military training. Cause you have expert swordsmen who have highly are highly trained in the assaults on, on you know, horseback, which it wasn't, you know, outside of, you know, a few instances in history that we know about today. And at least as, as history is told today, you know, you had Genghis Khan that kind of fell within that department, but again, there's, you know, what's his ancestry looks like. Is he part of these kind of same cultural right. shifts of these, you know, these, these groups be, you call them the the Russian Vikings or the Ainu people. I mean, it seems to indicate there was a culture here. We we appropriate names to them today, but, you know, maybe they were a far more, you know, you know, cogent culture. They weren't, you know, they look spread out is what I'm saying, but maybe they weren't that spread out.
0: And what about the inverse of Genghis Khan? We have people like Alexander the Great who were told went out and conquered many of these peoples who might have been, of that persuasion right i mean that for the longest time we have legends of barbarians and you know the foreigners are always like these evil big barbarous monstrous you know people maybe this is part of that legend you know why now it's kind of a part of the sociological you know makeup of a lot of borders till you know you have a border and you have one group that thinks the other group is one way and then the reflection is true for them as well they think that group is bad right yeah, yeah for sure yeah and that's yeah. a good point huh Wow. Maybe we got a is... we gotta,
1: we gotta, uh, Hutus and Tootsie situation our rains again.
0: And even, I, I mean, not to bring in like the more scientific angle, but I had a guest on a friend of mine who, who talked to me about the Neanderthal theory and how maybe this is very old where we had this other the Neanderthal who we had to compete with in this very ancient past. And this is kind of bled into Maybe this distinction between the mound builders and us. Who knows? Maybe the mound builders were some sort of, you know, other sapien, you know, Neanderthal, or uh, what's the other one? There's another one that's uh, cro not Cro-Magnon. There's another one that's uh, Denisovan. Denisovan. Sure, yeah. Is the same author I mentioned earlier that put out the Encyclopedia of Native American Mounds? He has a book about the called Denisovan Origins and it talks about the this might be a group that showed sort of proof that they were spiritual before any other you know group that we can find going back in the what is it called the timetable the carbon dated right these are the this is the oldest species of any kind that has some sort of religious examples in culture right
1: sure no i'm tracking it i mean that's a mm-hmm. it's an interesting thought because i mean it, it certainly does seem that the uh, the mound builders these giant human skeletons it seems like they these were people these were you know skeletons of people that may have been slightly different humans than what we often attribute today because just based upon the evidence of the physical evidence for, yielded from the uh, you know the excavation of these mounds and the uh, again the skeletons that were collected and put in some of which were, you know survived the excavation and were put in museums
0: so, check this out. I just picked that book up I mentioned. I think it's worth just reading the back of it and then we'll go back to.
1: No, yeah. I'd like to hear it because I'm not too familiar with the theory, but I mean, I like the general concept for a couple of reasons. But yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I paraphrase. So let me be very exact because I think this is very important stuff. Ice Age cave artists, the builders at Globe- Gobekli Tepe, and the mound builders of North America all share a common ancestry in. The Solutrians, Neanderthal okay. human hybrids of immense sophistication, who dominated southwest Europe before reaching North America 20,000 years ago. Yet, even before the Solutrians, the American continent was home to a powerful population of enormous stature, giants, remembered in Native American legend as the Thunder People. New research shows they were hybrid descendants of an extinct human group known as Denisovans, whose existence has now been confirmed from fossil remains found in a cave in the Altai region of Siberia. Tracing the migrations of the Denisovans and their interbreeding with Neanderthals and early human populations in Asia, Europe, Australia, and the Americas, Andrew Collins and Gregory Little, explore how the new mental capabilities of the Denisovan Neanderthal and Denisovan human hybrids greatly accelerated the flowering of human civilization over 40,000 years ago. They showed how wow. the Denisovan displayed sophisticated advances including precision machine tools, stone tools, jewelry, tailored clothing, celestially aligned architecture, and horse domestication. Wow. So, <laughs> there you not know, to give you thing. homework, my friend, but I you think know, I i got to
1: just, say, I read this book. In fact, it's funny. I think last week on Twitter, I think somebody suggested this book and author to me, and I, I just hadn't got around to even taking note of it. But I'm—you know—now you're bringing it up here. I, and reading that—that uh, that blurb right there—that sounds exactly in my wheelhouse. I definitely have to check this book out.
0: Yeah, I'm glad it rang a bell, and I'm glad people on Twitter are aware. Maybe they'll find this episode particularly enjoyable because there's just so much here to. You know, explore, and I think we're only oh, just beginning. Oh, for sure. Well, the, the kind of, like
1: know. I said, the combat on horseback. I mean, this is such an, an anomalous, you know, an outlying feature of warfare for that, again, not many groups did it. But they got the fact that that's even pointed out in that book. I find that very intriguing.
0: Well, and talk about that because, you know, the Native Americans were told they were introduced to horses with this, you know, the coming of the Spanish and bringing the horses over. And, you know, they seemed to bode really well with that. Like they immediately took to horseback riding and even shooting their weaponry, their bows and arrows off of horsebacks, you know, to, to. A very deadly precision that made for sure, yeah. You know, yeah, pretty, you know pretty much no, advanced yeah, were, weaponry with you know the guns and whatnot, right?
1: No, yeah, you're spot on there because uh, there was a couple of tribes, I believe, it was the Comanche in specific, that they were quite lethal when their uh, their horseback assaults. Right. So, yeah, there was, but my, but I often wonder, well, who taught them? Was it the Spanish? Did the Spanish bring the horses and teach them? I think that's certainly within the realm of possibility. I don't think we really in modern era, don't really track down a lot of that stuff. Cause you know, they weren't smart people is oftentimes what the, you know, the, the manifest destiny view of the natives have been in America for very long, you know, right. for a long time. So, yeah, you know, there's probably bias. a lot more to that story of how they were, how tribes like the Comanche learned how to be right. such, you know, have such a you know, vast amount of military assault skills on horseback that, especially relative comparison to, you know, other tribes contemporary to their area of the U S and you know, they definitely stood out so they're an outlier as well but you know with this i look at it this way but it's a great it's a great it's a great question to have is how did the natives get trained in that same capacity and i think i attribute to the spanish because you have folks like the spanish conquistador explorer hernando de soto so de soto actually he was born in the city of the knights templar in spain i mean i don't know his exact family tree but i lean towards he's a descendant of the templar and this is you know this is only 200 years after the Templar, you know, had basically owned Spain there, you know, up until the early 1300s. And they changed their name to, I believe, the Knights of Christ. I'm blanking on them in their name, but they basically just changed the sign and the flag out, out front and call themselves something different. But obviously the organization, the principles, the concepts of understanding the philosophy of these people, these men that continued on, I believe Hernando is within that bloodline and the continuity of their philosophies because he hails from the, temp, the, the city of the Knights Templar in Spain. He's a, you know, comes to America and, you know, seemed to have interest in meeting giants and checking out mounds, which again, kind of goes in line with the rest of these folks within that same bloodline as De Soto noted in his journals apparently that they came in contact with Tuscaloosa Tuscaloosa I can't pronounce that right I never can. Tuscaloosa as in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and that's a mound town and apparently named after the local tribe leader of that area and apparently old Tuscaloosa was over seven feet tall according to Hernando De Soto. You know you see that these Spanish explorers, You know according to to what history tells us today and some of the accounts of the explorers interacting with folks like the you know the natives and running into giants and you know i'm assuming there was a certain degree of you know exchange there within some of their you know probably goods but also services you know teaching them how to assault folks with on horseback in a manner that is nearly indefensible
0: (laughs) right right now there's so much we could say about the giants. Unfortunately, they can't speak for themselves, right? I mean, <laughs> right. skeletons don't talk. But something that does have a chance of being understood more so are some of the tablets that are found in these mounds. And you don't hear nearly as much about these as you do the skeletons. And, you know, we've talked about some in Michigan on the show with chad stemke and chad said that a lot of these tablets were considered at one point sought after people collected them and then eventually someone decided to have a expert take a look at them and then oh well it went out of favor and everybody thought well this guy declared them a hoax so it's not interesting to have these anymore and they threw a party to smash them all Right. So this is unfortunately the kind of thing that happened in the 19th century with these artifacts. But luckily for us, many of them have been preserved in other places. We have the Grave Creek Mound tablet, the Cincinnati tablet, the Wilmington tablet. Tell us a little bit about these. I mean, have we been able to discern like the languages are these native american languages are they not native american languages i mean wh- who made these tablets
1: no that's a great question mark and you're right you're spot on with the destruction of these tablets as the stories and legends go there was a vast amount of instances like you described where folks had declared these things basically frauds and the folks that were collecting and yeah, destroyed them however a number of them were Taken into private collections and sit in museums today when those museums feel like displaying them, because as I've learned over the years, they're not always on display. And the Cincinnati tablet is one of those. It often transfers between the Cincinnati Art Museum, because that's the other thing with these tablets. Modern day interpretations of these tablets are, this is just art. There's no language on them, which I find that to be extremely ignorant. But uh, so the Cincinnati tablet specifically goes between the Art Museum and the History Museum. And the best attempt to see that I've seen at interpreting what the text, the shapes of the tablet, you know, what the actual text of it is, because it's, again, it's an art; it's a, it's an ancient language, and that's ancient Hittite. So that's you know, back to the Knights Templar, and the ancient Hittite language would have been prominent in and around you know the uh, the era of these Adena mounds, you know, and uh, in the area on the border between Tur- modern day Turkey and Syria, kind of the area where ISIS was destroying all those ancient monuments and holy sites. You know, not that many years ago now, right? Like five or six years ago. Right there, right near the modern day San Turkey. So that's where the ancient Hittite language would have been originating from. So some of these tablets, like the Cincinnati tablet, I believe the Wilmington tablet, they both indicate the, a language that's that seems to me to be the most reasonable conclusion is ancient Hittite. And again, the Templars first crusade, the you know, the infamous Templar Crusades to the Holy Land, right? Well, it's often described to the Holy Land, but they spent their first twenty years in and around the area of San Lurfa, Turkey, modern day San Lurfa, Turkey, right around the ancient kingdom of Edessa. That was they set up shop there and they stayed there. That was that seemed to be their main focus coming out the gate out of the Council of Claremont on the way to their first crusade. So I find it odd that, you know, we're talking about the same kind of time frame this language originates from, is the same kind of time frame Cincinnatus lived. Same time frame where these Adena mounds were first, you know, constructed, and now we're talking geographically speaking. We're talking about a, the language from these tablets go back to a an ancient area of the, you know, I guess said Turkey, modern day Turkey's Syria border, and and that just happens to be the same precise area where the Templar were so focused on in their first crusade. So I don't find all these any of these things to be a coincidence. Mark, is so what I'm getting at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you at all. And up here, my neck of the woods in New England, there is a few examples of different tablets or you know engravings that have been found. One of them in, I think it, it's wow, Dundee Mass or something like that. I, geez, I wish I remembered, but another one, which I'm not going to say where it is because I want to go there very soon and take some pictures of it. So I want to be the first one to go there, but uh, there's one I've heard about and read about in on a mountain somewhere here in Connecticut, and people have seen going back all the way to when Connecticut was first explored by the colonists. They found what they saw as Hebrew inscriptions in a rock. So there you go. You're saying you know Hittite, which obviously isn't the same as Hebrew. Maybe it's similar, but. You know, I wonder, did the Templars have some sort of map of North America or maybe some evidence that people from Turkey or that part of the world had gone, you know, to North America and then come back and that material or artifact was concentrated at Odessa because I mean there there's an author, Barry fell, who's written about, you know, having evidence of Phoenician and all these other different cultures from the Mediterranean that had traveled to the east coasts of North America. He writes about it in his book America BC. I mean, what do you think? Do you think the Templars found a map or something?
1: Yeah, again, I think yeah, absolutely, Mark. I think we're talking the same kind of subject. This is a uh, philosophies and knowledge passed down through bloodlines and elements of those same bloodlines being members of certain organizations and. Esoteric groups, because you know, there's a actually there's an author that's named Ralph Ellis who has written a whole series of books, building a strong circumstantial case that the his quote unquote historical Jesus from the Bible was was a fellow by the name of King Akbar, I believe was his name, and he was out of the kingdom of Odessa. You know, I tend to think that Ralph Ellis might be onto something there, because once again, the people that claim to be the bloodline descendants, you know, the whole Da Vinci Tale code of Don't you code tale of the bloodline descendants of Mary and Jesus? Well, that's the Templar, right? So why are they going to the kingdom of Odessa as their primary focus of their first crusade? So I think, you know, a lot of these things are getting passed down to those groups. And that's why we might say Phoenician, we might say Templar, you know, but we're really talking about the same body of knowledge that just traversed the generations of these bloodlines from, you know, the seafaring people of the Phoenicians to the seafaring people of the Templar, right?
0: That's interesting. Yeah.
1: Wow. But relative to the Hebrew connection, I think it is interesting that the bad creek stone out of a Hopewell mound in Tennessee on Cherokee territory was was discovered to have first century ancient Hebrew writing on it. So, you know, I think there is there is some arguments we made, and I'm not, I don't want to dive full-blown into, I don't want to go full-blown Mormon on you and say it's all the lost tribes, but I think once again, we're talking about bloodlines and, you know, you know, groups that we just attribute these names to, but it's really the, under, the underlying philosophy is just really being passed down to these families.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, it is interesting you say that about the Mormons, but, you know, for worse or for better, they have preserved that that aspect of the 17th and 18th century consciousness here in America that had those sort of theories about The Native Americans and what I mean, those kind of ideas were commonplace back then, and obviously there's a big Freemasonic connection to the Mormons as well. So maybe that plays into why you know some of these groups have gone to hide this sort of information. I mean, even the Mormon Church, they're not exactly up out up front about. Some of this stuff, either <laughs> no, but the, so
1: their entire uh, their entire philosophy is built around mounds and golden tablets. In their case, found in mounds, right? Right. It's, which serves as the bur- purpose of the Book of Mormon or the, uh, well, the translation into the Book of Mormon.
0: Let's focus on that for a second, because. You know, I found a little synchronicity here earlier and now just again because Milford comes up with, you know, where I'm from and where some mounds are in Ohio. But the man, a man who helped found the town of Milford, went on to found the town of New Ark, New Jersey, which he named that to mean, as it said, I just said it, New Ark, like the New Ark of the covenant or maybe the ark from, you know, Noah's ark. But, you know, there is a, a religious connotation to that name. And then we have the Newark, Ohio mounds where they find 10 commandments inscribed, you know, whether or not this is a sort of manufactured thing with these secret groups who maybe want to manufacture some sort of religion i mean you can say you know, hopefully not offending any mormons here but to some extent i mean we can see that the creation of that religion i wouldn't maybe they wouldn't like the term it being manufactured but i wonder you know if that is the case from that skeptical side or if this is all just very you know in line with how the world works you know, synchronicities and consciousness uh, you know like attracts like people go to this place with these mounds they name it new ark not by accident clearly because there are 10 commandments there i mean how does that happen this is called the decalage stone
1: yeah the, yeah, the Decalogue stone which i believe may just be latin for the the ten Commandments.
0: right okay yeah that makes sense wow yeah i mean they found this in newark which again like these guys who founded newark new jersey were very religious they were you know not just you know leaders in their community in government but leaders in the church because that position was pretty much synonymous back then so yeah, the ideas that they walked with through their life—I mean, they instilled it literally into the land that they left behind them.
1: No, for sure, those are some good points. And you know, I'm kind of generally on the fence on that kind of that topic. Is it intentional groups from you know secret societies or cult understandings that are, they're doing these activities and naming these things like New Ark, or is it simply some sort of you know meta, the machinations of metaphysical, you know, universe you know, machinations within this. Metaphysical environment we don't see with our normal senses we can't detect with the normal senses. Right. And, you know, I kind of on the fence there, but you know, it could be. I don't think it's mutually exclusive either. I think it, it could be both.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And you know, going back to Newark, the Earthworks complex. You know, if we could get into this sixth point here on the knowledge of the mound builders and what's demonstrated, because it does feel like you know, the creator, this idea that we are living in a creation. You know, maybe you can look at the landscape as an expression of that, especially when you consider how the geometry is encoded. And even as you point out, the serpent mound, which most people are told that it's depicting the serpent eating the sun, you said here that it should be named the sperm and the egg mound. Why why do you say that?
1: Yeah, I think that would probably be a more accurate depiction of what we're looking at there because... One, I don't know any rattlesnakes that have, that's what it's close, most closely resembles would be a rattlesnake. And I don't know any rattlesnakes here in this area, that there's a history of rattlesnakes here in this area, of any documented history. And in looking at it, you know, and trying to understand the entire, the totality of the mound and what it, what purpose it, it, it served as to the ancient folk, who, the mound builders who built it, it seems to be more of a universal calendar. So... It's the actual architecture of the mound, of the quote-unquote serpent. The bends in, in the serpent and whatnot all have, you know, precise alignments with the sky above dictating when changes in the season are going to occur, when the cycles of the, the moon are going to occur, when there's going to be equinoxes and solstices. You know, all these things are Im- embedded into the calendar, Im- embedded to the quote-unquote serpent mound. But if you look at it and take it one step further, The mound almost, I mean, it's allegedly a serpent eating, some folks say the sun, some folks say an egg, right? But, you know, neither one of them make a lot of sense to me. What makes the most sense is what we're looking at there is an ancient mound builder's depiction of sperm eating an egg and representing the creation of life in this universe, no different than the mound, dictates the sustainment of that life by you know, assisting folks in understanding the changes in their environment with the weather, with the seasons, with the lunar cycle, et cetera. And again, it's all embedded into this one ancient mound that was built, depending on who you ask, you know, 3,000, 4,000 years ago.
0: Right, right. And I mean, there are so many aspects of this that, speak to as we read in that blurb on the back of the book i read earlier from gregory little and andrew collins you know, these are sophisticated people these are not merely you know stone chucking spear throwing you know bow and arrow shooting hunter gatherers these are people with a sophisticated culture and that's not to say that's what the native americans were and here's why all these people were different than the native americans were that might have been one of the thoughts that. People had in a more, I don't know, racially motivated aspect (laughs) of archaeology and anthropology that was alive in the 19th century. But I'm just saying from the point of view of, you know, our modern perspective, we often have the bias of thinking, oh, we're at the height of progress now. I think the Native Americans themselves would point to that and say, hey, we had things going on way more smoothly when you guys weren't here. You know, the way we had our culture set up was much more balanced and on and, you know, who knows, maybe that's because they looked to this culture as a big brother. They had maybe a more direct relationship with this very advanced culture that left its mark with these monuments and clearly draws the ire of all these esoteric groups. I mean, you have the the next point here, a local Freemason Lodge developed a plan to build an obelisk on the mound site where the Kensington runestone was located in Minnesota. Did that happen? Did they actually fulfill that plan?
1: You know, now that I think about it, if they did, I believe they might almost might have, but maybe the land changed ownership was shortly thereafter. But yeah, there was definitely, I definitely recall, if I don't recall seeing photographs, I definitely recall seeing an actual, you know, blueprint plan for the construction of that, that site, a an obelisk on that site. And again, that's a, a Knights Templar land claim artifact that was buried in a mound in, you know, kind of north midwestern Missis, Minnesota. Right. And it sits there sort today of in a museum, it's, and you can go see it, and it's, it's an interesting piece of history. And again, I think what I find most interesting you know, relative to that, there specifically in that land claim, is America just happened to get the land that, that Kensington Runestone was claiming in the later Louisiana Purchase during the early 1800s, with within President Thomas Jefferson. Well, and
0: often people forget that the French explored all of this land probably after second to the Spanish, but way before anybody who is properly American did. Right, and the French oh, have sure. a, a tremendous archive, compendium of esoteric information and tons of you know pedigree with different secret societies. So, yeah, the French. Well, yeah. Are, yeah, half, half the
1: society of cincinnati again is french right? right i mean right we're kind of circling back to the same people right maybe that 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 specific area of that that land claim was was a, this understanding or knowledge and philosophy that was passed down through those side of the bloodline right maybe through the french side of the society right yeah. from the Templar down to the you know a few hundred you know 500 years later to the french members of the society you know for all we know that yeah, i think in our modern era of history these are things that are have a lot more design and engineering to them, and they're sold to us through, you know, modern historical events like the quote unquote, Louisiana Purchase. Right.
0: Well, and yeah, absolutely. And it's just so fascinating. I mean, of course we can't know everything that they found here, (laughs) but I heard from my friend, Lauren Jeffries, who again is a native American member of a tribe. And, He told me that the Chinese allegedly took a voyage up the Mississippi River a thousand years before Columbus ever did and a thousand years before that, too. And that may be the reason why the mound builders were vacant when the French and these groups explored the areas that the mound builders would have inhabited cuz again the native americans had stories of those people but they themselves weren't those people and i think for the most part they either used certain mounds as ceremonial spaces or they left them alone as in had respect for them but you know weren't exactly again weren't claiming them to be their own so i wonder you know maybe the chinese interacted with these mound builders. I don't speak Chinese or read Chinese, (laughs) so I don't know if they have legends of American giants, but, you know, we have Spanish explorers who have accounts of interacting with living giants. What's his name that went and sailed down around the coast of Argentina there for the first time? Excuse me. He named the place Patagonia because he saw a giant, Land of the Giants, Patagonia.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah, I, was, I guess I was unfamiliar with that. Was that which explorer was this one for Patagonia? That would have been maybe. Was, was that? Was he British?
0: No, it was a Spanish explorer. Oh, um, a Spanish guy. Yeah, I forget what, it. Was it De Soto? No, it wasn't De Soto. It wasn't Ponce de Leon. It was another. That was my second guess. Yeah, I'm thinking think about a Spanish
1: explorers to guess right now. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's a book around here somewhere that has his name in it, and it was more readily. Uh, available, So maybe listeners of the show are like screaming it because they've heard me say it before. <laughs> nice. And they're like, why aren't you remembering? But no, yeah, he, somebody, now I'm thinking Veracruz, but that's definitely not it. But either way, a guy, oh, punch. No forget it forget it i'm not no, I, that's
1: i like it some dude he was a spanish explorer <laughs> and named it after a giant i mean for the purposes of what we're talking about here that's all we really need to know right and i think that's a good point you make there i really think you hear it honestly i will interject real quick yeah. mark actually can we wrap it up on this point and maybe tackle some more of these subjects in a future show
0: absolutely yeah i know we're heading on to our up to the second hour here so we yeah. could wrap no up worries but
1: sure. I, I can i uh can I offer you a quick analysis on what I think you just hit? The salient characteristic of this whole mound builder topic, I think. Please, when yeah. you mentioned the Chinese coming to America and stuff like that, I think that's probably very accurate. I probably the Asian cultures no different. The uh, amongst the Pacific Islanders no different than the Chinese. I think they they likely did venture over here into to these areas of the world because they were also very skilled at seafaring culture so that wouldn't surprise me in the least but i think what you, what you the salient characteristics you kind of hit on with that story was we don't know who the mound builders are we don't know how they got there and we don't know where they went and that's right. if i can leave any in summary of a lot of, of this whole mountain conversation we've had here today which I greatly appreciate the invite and the time to have with you there, Mark, because you've you got my wheels turning on a couple different topics and added some stuff to my reading list, so I appreciate all of that. And, but I think I was, if I were to hammer him the point there is, uh, in summary, we don't know who these people are. We don't know where they came from as far as getting this knowledge, and we don't know what happened to the Mountain Bulbers, right?
0: Right, right. Well, folks, go and check out Operation GCD podcast. JJ, thank you so much for doing this with me. I don't want to hold (laughs) you Thank
1: you, Mark. I always love talking mounds. So anytime you want to talk more mounds in the future, I'm your guy. Just let me know.
0: Yeah, and we almost made it all the way through the list. We get three more points to go, but who knows? We'll definitely, I think we're going to get a lot of people who are going to love this episode. And we'll definitely have time to come back and much more to talk about. Maybe after you get the encyclopedia of mounds, we can do like a top 10 mounds episode or something like that
1: no no for sure that sounds like an awesome idea and you pick five i'm definitely gonna get that book because it sounds like a very those guys sound like they know what they're talking about in my opinion and uh, we in a future episode we can't miss in my general theory of weird shit happens in around mounds because as you pointed out earlier in our
0: discussion (laughs) there's examples of that in the uk here and in the u.s here right 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 well with that folks thank you so much for tuning in go and support the dude operation gcd podcast the links are in the description and of course if you didn't listen to the first episode already go back and listen to my first interview with jj and check out his many conversations with steven on the farm mock too until next time immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was our second conversation with J.J. Vance. If you happen to listen to this before you listen to our former conversation, go back and listen to that. It definitely will shed some light on the Society of the Cincinnati, who was definitely mentioned today. But I just want to thank everybody for sticking around with us in the outro. I also want to thank everybody who I met at the... Broadbrook Opera House at Sam Tripoli's Comedy Club it was a real treat I was surprised that uh, people wanted to take a picture with me that was cool got to take a picture with some people shout out to Sean and Shauna shout out to Derek Uh, shout out to the other Sean shout out to Mike shout out to Matt I mean there's so many people Uh, unfortunately I can't give everybody a shout out because I don't remember everyone's name kind of bad at that but oh Gavin I remember Gavin shout out to Gavin but um, it was a really fun time got to meet Eddie Bravo and finally met XG in person smoked a blunt and all that good stuff a lot of people mentioned New Haven and I'd be happy to give anybody a tour if you happen to live in the local area maybe you were at the show last night few people mentioned it but i'd be happy to give you a tour of new haven and show you all the secret society buildings unfortunately sam did not come for a tour but that's okay i forgive him i really wanted to show him around but he uh did not have time while he was here in connecticut so send him a message tell him he missed out folks let him know sam you should have freaking walked around new haven and saw all the weird stuff but that's all right more motivation, more fuel in the fire for me to get this documentary going and show the world what's really going on. But back to our subject at hand today, the mounds. I wanted to read some newspaper articles that were collected by a gentleman named Richard J. Dewhurst in his great book, The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America. These are newspaper articles that shed light on what we talked about today. I thought people might find them interesting. World's Fair dig leads to Giant Monarch, gigantic skeleton evidently of a prehistoric monarch exhumed in Ohio. Centralia, Ohio Enterprise, November 21st, 1891. Chillicothe, Ohio, Warren K. Moorhead and Dr. Cresson who have been prosecuting excavations here for the past two months in the interest of the World Fair have just made one of the richest finds of the century in the way of prehistoric remains. Those gentlemen have confined their excavation to the Hopewell Farm, seven miles from here upon which are located some 20 odd Indian mounds. On Saturday, they were at work on a mound 500 feet long, 200 feet wide and 28 feet high. At the depth of 14 feet near the center of the mound, they exhumed the massive skeleton of a man encased in copper armor The head was covered in an oval-shaped copper cap. The jaw had a copper mold. The jaws had copper mouldings. The arms were dressed in copper, while the copper plates were while copper plates covered the chest and stomach and on each side of the head. On protruding sticks were wooden antlers ornamented with copper. The mound the mouth was stuffed with genuine pearls of immense size but much decayed Round the neck was a necklace of bear's teeth set with pearls at the side of the male skeleton was also found a female skeleton the two being supposed to be man and wife mr moorhead and mr cresson believe they have at last found the king of the mound builders wow very interesting in this other this other um article here talks about millions of pearls recovered in an ohio mound so many pearls 500,000 were obtained um, many of them had no value because they had amalgamated together in one giant pearl and they tried to salvage some of them by peeling back the layers like an onion that's what the newspaper article says but this book is great and the other book i mentioned that i was surprised to find out jj hadn't heard of yet It's by dr gregory little it's the encyclopedia of mounds in north america you could easily find that online and i'm glad everybody tuned in for this conversation Uh, it's been a blast doing the podcast and uh jj vance really kicked it out of the park today glad everybody tuned in um giving a big old shout out to everybody i met at broadbrook and of course the supporters of this podcast every one of you on Patreon, every one of you on Rockfin and Substack. Without you, this show wouldn't exist. And if we can get to 250 patrons, we will be committing to putting out one in-person interview a month. Um, We're gonna be interviewing people who are unconventional, off the radar, maybe off the grid, people who wouldn't sign up for a Zoom call type interview. That's the kind of stuff I want to be doing. I'm going to be videoing it, of course, recording video, of course. And, uh, yeah, if you want to see that happen, sign up on the Patreon. Shout out to the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. I gave out a Hit Kit last night at the Broadbrook Opera House to uh, two folks that recognize me, a very lovely couple. I gave them a shout out. Their names are very easy to remember. They are Sean and Shauna. They listen to podcasts and Shauna smoke. So we gave her the hit kit. You should pick one up too. It's a great gift for anyone, friend, fan, whatever you are doing out there, whoever you're encountering. If they smoke, chances are they're going to have a need for a hit kit. It's a great little device. It's got a lighter. It's got compartments so you can keep your weed safe and sound. Never lose it again. Never reach into your pocket to find crumpled up weed ever again. That's it. That's so all we're going to say for this episode. We're going to keep it short, sweet, and to the point. Shout out to JJ Vance. Go listen to his podcast, Operation GCD. And until next time, folks, I'll catch you on the flip side. Support us on the Patreon. Peace. Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now.
2: service can't reach me on the circuit Uh, i'm peeking through the curtain nothing is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait i'm peeking through the curtain hardly feeling like a person but the vibes are perfect Uh, i'm peeking through the curtain nothing is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait my third eyes open and my chakras flowing all seven channels in my spirits flowing knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean it's the eightfold path and the sacred lotus uh, i'm peeking flipping through akashic records my ego's decomposing like a leopard i'm mega casey going some levitation so with zero hesitation as i jump into the spaceship i'm weary from faking like a earthling while skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry, studying my old selves like it's anthropology, honestly, feeling like life's a comedy, as big a game as a paper-run economy, I'll be playing safe but safest for the weaker heart. hard, wait, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart, wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit, uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose, wait, through the curtain, hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect, Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose, wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies, I lay the rest, the ego and the frequent themes, that keep me seeing life inside a box, small minds kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk, I might need a suture for this rift in space, I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes, Hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism living in their vacant smiles Uh. Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh. I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait i'm peeking through the curtain hardly feeling like a person but the vibes are perfect uh, i'm peeking through the curtain nothing is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait